This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. Season 10, Episode 23. This is Writing Excuses. Can you tell me how to show? 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Howard. I'm Mary. I'm Dan. And this is our Show Don't Tell podcast. Specifically, we're talking about painting a scene. Um, and we decided we were going to split this into two parts. And the first one we're going to talk about is the actual paint. The words that we're using. How can you, as a writer, use the right proper words? Um, and how can you evoke an image with those words in your reader's mind? Polysyllabic adverbs. Okay, <laughs> polysyllabic adverbs. Okay, all right. Yeah, okay, well, now we're done. I'm Constantly. sure that's uh-huh. yes, all the time. <laughs> Surreptitiously is one of my very favorites. Yeah, audio engineers or audiobook narrators hate you for that word. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the things, when you're, when you're describing anything, there are multiple different ways you can describe it. And the emotion of the person who is describing it will often color the, the words that they use. So that's one thing you can do is you can use your character's POV. Uh, but when I'm, when I'm saying that it can color the way you're describing something, you know, I can say that something is uh, brown and shiny and brown, glossy and brown, mm-hmm. slimy and brown. These are all things that have a sheen to them, but they evoke very different images. Well, the, the example that I, that I coughed up there uh, surreptitiously is a great example because if you say... He glanced around surreptitiously. That is telling. Mm-hmm. And if you say, uh, you know, he peered left, uh, took a breath, and you know, and stepped back, and then peered right, uh, and then glanced straight ahead and snuck across the hall, you know, leaning low. You've described surreptitious behavior in a way that shows me what is happening. Yeah, you. Uh, I, the word surreptitiously yeah. doesn't doesn't evoke any of the suspense. That, that is why a lot of people will tell you not to use adverbs. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, there's nothing inherently evil about the adverb, except that when you use one, you are avoiding all of that other better stuff. Yeah, you're working. You have to work harder to get rid of the adverb. So it's the suggestion: get rid of it. Um, one thing I always like to tell my class before we get too far into discussion of this is that. Showing, as Howard just proved, takes more words. Mm-hmm. Telling takes fewer. Um, the, and people always say in the industry, show, don't tell. We've said on the podcast before, it's know when to show and when to tell. Yeah. Um, because you will want to tell some of the time. Well, actually, point of fact, you are telling all of the time because yes. it's written words. Right, mm-hmm. right. And you're going to decide where, you know what, I need to cover this really fast. Um, and I'm going to use a paragraph where mm-hmm. I could use a page. A lot of other times you'll say, <clears throat> I'm going to use a page where I could use a paragraph to do what Howard just said, to show them in the scene, acting surreptitious, being nervous. Yeah, I actually think the better advice comes from Inigo Montoya, which mm-hmm. is, is too much, let me sum up. Mm-hmm. There are times when yeah. it, the, the showing gets in the way of the action and you just have to tell people. Yes. And there are times when you want to take the time and relish it and build that emotional tension. Yeah, and, 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 well, and that's, what, that's why. It's because you're trying to create a certain emotion. You know, like with Howard's example just now, he was trying to create tension. Um, you know, when you draw a moment out like that, adding extra words has a specific function beyond just adding extra words. It, 
takes time. It forces the reader to focus their attention on a single moment in time, and just the mere process of doing that creates tension. Yeah, and going back to my my love of puppetry, uh, there's a thing that we call, you know, so focus indicates thought, breath indicates emotion, and breath specifically in, in writing relates to the rhythm in which we do things. So this is not only how long a character is looking at something, mm -hmm. You, you tend to linger on things that you need to engage with more, uh, but how long you're describing something, but also the the actual sentence structure. You'll hear people say short, choppy sentences are required for action scenes, um, which I think is related to the the breathing pattern of short, choppy sentences. Right, that's a good idea. And so, a, a good theory. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's in, a good in, theory. No, I, the, I think it might uh, be right. The uh, opening page, I think, of The Devil's Only Friend, um, when John Cleaver, which is the new John Cleaver book, um, he is describing how he's so normal and how everything he does, he's got his life under control. And then there's one paragraph that is in a single sentence and just goes on the entire time with no, no periods to give you a respite, which is a specific way of showing he's lost control over this. I love that technique because it's it's poetic. The, uh, that that run-on sentence uh, has a subtext to it that, that is like a poem. Uh, and in fact, were there commas and semicolons mm -hmm. yeah. in there? Yep. Um, there's, I don't know, the comma is kind of a sharp thing. Actually, there's Visually, a... it creates a, for me anyway. Yeah. I, for me, I mean, this is, again, coming at it from an audiobook narrator standpoint, but for me, um, there's a mechanical thing that we teach uh, people to do when they're, they're first learning to read aloud, um, and that is, you see a comma and you count to one, you see a period, you count to two, a paragraph, you count to three. And what this is doing is it is forcing the person who's learning to read to do the natural pauses that one does when speaking. And punctuation and grammar in general, I think, is designed as a way to codify something that we do naturally. Um, since I have actually read the scene that Dan is talking about, because I love A Devil's Only Friend, um, that run-on sentence has the effect... Uh, it's not even a run-on sentence. It's actually... It's just a yeah, long, it's well just really long sentence. one. Yeah, but what it, it has the effect of is someone who is not stopping to catch their breath. And, and, and visually, you get that as well. Um, so that's, again, when we're talking about trying to create a tone and a mood, mm -hmm. one of the things you can look at is, is the length of your sentences. The first sentence of Glamour in Glass, which I have memorized because I've had to handwrite it into so many books <laughs> because it was left out, but that's another story that I'm not bitter about, um, is, uh, tells you immediately the pace of the book. Uh, there are few things in this world that can simultaneously delight and dismay in the same manner as a formal dinner party. This is very long, it's very formal, and it says you are in for something that is slower paced. Whereas, do you remember the first sentence of that off the top oh, of your head? Devil's only friend? Yeah, it's really... I'm fine now. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's, it's so concise, you know, and it's... You know, a counterexample that uh, our friend Dave, one, one of our writing instructors, brought, brought out in his class that I've always remembered, hasn't stopped me from using it, but it's made me think, is the word suddenly. Mm. Um, because suddenly has the effect of 
delaying the thing you're going to say is suddenly happening. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that if you simply write the thing happening, it's actually more jarring mm-hmm. and more sudden to the reader than stopping and saying suddenly. Yeah. Uh, which is a really interesting thing when you think about it. Yeah, although one of the things visually mm-hmm. that you often have to do is start that jarring thing on a new paragraph. Right. To 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 set it up visually, but also to have that that moment right. of that in, inhalation. Of and that's that's what the suddenly, suddenly does. Is yeah. a word suddenly is a word that uh, typically gets used. I think best when a character is describing a thing to another character. Mm-hmm. You know, this was happening to me, and this and this and this, and then suddenly, whatever, as as something is being recounted, so you are being shown somebody tell a thing. Now, another thing I wanted to jump in here and mention, you glossed over um, the focus of the character Mm. um, as the two things you've learned from, or several of the things you've learned from puppetry. But ever since that discussion about puppetry years ago um, on the podcast, when we first had you on, I've been thinking of that as a writing rule for myself in that I wasn't able to verbalize why my student writing sometimes the paragraphs felt reversed. Um, They would start with the wrong sentence. And they've learned to start with a topic sentence. And you writers, sometimes you've learned to start with a topic sentence, but then you get into, by the end, what the character is actually paying attention to, and that feels wrong to a reader. The character, what they are focused on, should be what you're introducing Mm -hmm. your paragraph or your scene with, rather than, here's the scene and here's what the character is looking at. That's a better explanation of why my upside-down trick works, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is sometimes just taking the description and taking the last thing you wrote and put it first, and reread the paragraph and see what happens to it. For a while in our writing group, we had a uh, film student, um, and I remember him critiquing a paragraph that I had written that was the problem, mm-hmm. and the way he phrased it, rather than you have a topic sentence and you don't get to the character stuff till the end, is he said, you've written this as, as if it were a camera shot. Mm-hmm. The camera mm-hmm. is panning f- across and slowly building up to the important thing, which works in film and doesn't work in prose. You need to do it the other way around. Right, because you need to be with the character, and the character has already seen the thing while the yes. camera is panning. In, you know, students do this sometimes even in the same sentence. The first part of the sentence is not what the character is focused on. The second part is, and I see this all the time in yeah. my student writing. There's something, a, a technique that I'm, that I'm calling circling, mm-hmm. uh, which is um, that... Generally speaking, when you've got a list of things, a list of whether it's a, a, a list of sentences, but um, things your character is noticing, whatever it is, uh, the first thing that your character sees is the thing that catches their attention. And the last thing that in that list is the thing that they linger on. So one of the tricks you can use sometimes is to circle back and have the important thing be both the first and the last mm-hmm. thing. So, like, um, the, the example that I use when I'm teaching is the man walked into the room. There was a blonde sitting in the chair. She had hair down to the base of her spine and legs that wouldn't stop. So what I'm doing is sees the woman, sees the chair, comes back to the woman. Mm. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Excellent. Um, let's stop for our book of the week. Yeah, our book of the week this week comes, it's the debut novel by Shalee MacArthur. 
um, who is a friend of mine and uh, a writer that I've worked with a lot at uh, conventions and stuff. It's called The Unhappening of Genesis Lee, and it is a uh, YA science fiction near future about... uh, Essentially, they they have developed a technology where you can store your memories in objects, and then one of these objects gets stolen from the main character, and she has to figure out what she doesn't remember and why. Uh, It's a really, really cool world-building. I loved the character herself, Genesis Lee. Um, Really fun story. So, uh, The Unhappening of Genesis Lee by Shalee MacArthur, read by Cassandra Morris. And this you can get on uh, audiblepodcast.com slash excuse. You can get a 30-day free trial, which will allow you to pick up The Unhappening of Genesis Lee for free. Now, one thing I really always want to talk about when we say painting a scene is making the choice by how flowery you want your prose to be. Mm. Um, and I say flowery, that word is bad. But there is, you know, there are ways to write really great pr- prose that is very evocative. Um, but is not very clear. Um, and sometimes you get a writer in a writing group who's trying to write prose like this, and the rest of the writers just think that that's bad prose when it's not. It's, they're writing from a different, um, they're coming in a different direction. Other times you have the genre fiction writer, this is more often, in a class in an MFA program, and they're like, your prose is terrible. When the prose is not terrible, or the prose, you know, they're, they're trying to push it in a different direction. Yeah. I, I was on a panel uh, at a convention just a couple weeks ago where somebody pointed out uh, Ernest Hemingway and William Faulkner were contemporaries and mm-hmm. wrote at the same time, and their writing styles yeah. could not Very be different. more different. Yeah. And so just because something is more sparse or more flowery doesn't make it bad or better. Mm-hmm. It just means you are writing in a different way for a different audience. I right. often I- point out me and Pat Rothfuss. Mm-hmm. Pat mm-hmm. is a lot more flowery than I am, um, and his prose is beautiful, and I love it. I try for very spare prose. I try for very clear prose. Yeah, and and I think what we're looking at here is uh, audience expectation. Mm -hmm. That it's not just the the kind of prose that you're trying to write, but who you are trying to write for. And a lot of times Mm -hmm. there are genre expectations. There are. That come with that, that certain, you know, uh, certain time periods, certain Mm -hmm. types of fiction will, people want different things. We've talked um, in previous podcasts about how a lot of times in YA, you are much more upfront about, so this is what my character is thinking. Yep. Because it's a different audience. It is. So, so when, you're, when you're sitting down to write, this is one of the reasons we talk about knowing who you are writing for, is that you need to know what sort of audience expectations you're going in. And this doesn't have to be market research. This can be like, I am writing this for my friend Beth, who mm-hmm. likes this kind of book, and she represents this larger market sample. Right. Or even I'm writing this book for people who like this book, this book, this book, and this book. Mm-hmm. The things that I love to read that are like that, yep. that's the sort of thing I want to be doing. One of the things that I find uh, I find fun to experiment with and I rarely have I rarely have time uh, in the in the prose that I write is to take something that I am describing that is beautiful and deciding to describe it using words that I find beautiful mm. versus using words that I find unwieldy or ugly because those two techniques, mm-hmm. uh, those two techniques convey a different emotion. Mm-hmm. That's right. And depending on what I'm trying to accomplish, uh, they can be equally 
equally powerful in, in getting the message across. You know, you're trying, or you're bringing the podcast back to one of the first things we mentioned, which is yeah, letting your descriptions evoke your character's emotion mm -hmm. at the moment. Um, and a lot of the best descriptions do things like that, but not always just that. Um, I jotted down a quick three. You can use descriptions to evoke your character's emotional state, but you can also evoke their culture mm -hmm. and their status in that culture by the mere way they describe the world. You can also evoke their history, um, what's been going on in their life lately by the way they describe the world, or, you know, you can do so much with descriptions. You shouldn't let them just accomplish getting across what something looks like. Yeah, and you can actually do all three of those. Yes, you can. Which is, you know, when we talk about, we, we talk about POV all the time, and I think that a lot of times we forget that it really does mean point of view. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about tight third person point of view, which is the current fashion. Yeah, or first person, or, or first a tight person, first person. Or a tight first person. Mm -hmm. You are talking about seeing the world of that story through, from the point of view of a particular character. And that means not just from where they are standing, but from where they have stood in the past. So that is going to affect how they see things. So like the words that I use to describe something are going to be very different to, you know, if I were describing the room that we're in, I, I would describe it very differently than a fireman who would see all of the books and be horrified at the... Or for me, I mean, you would describe this room. We're at your house right mm -hmm. now. I mean, you would attach emotional significance to a lot of these yeah. things, whereas I would not not having, you know, these aren't, aren't my things. So instead, I would be looking at them from a curiosity stake. Oh, what, I wonder why this is here. Or I, I've heard of that book or things like that. A great, a great contrast that, uh, that I think it's easy for the listener to imagine is the homicide detective looking at a murder scene mm -hmm. and cataloging what has mm -hmm. happened versus a family member of the deceased walking in and discovering this. Those are two completely different experiences. Yeah. Um, and what, uh, I mean, if, if you want to write something really powerful, a scene in which the homicide detective is looking at a murder scene and then recognizes the person, mm -hmm. and then the description of the scene changes yeah. as this person's reaction to the scene changes. And I think, I think that that is, that, that sort of difference is a lot of the places that we see a disconnect between, a disconnection between the prose and the character. Uh, like when we have a character who is, um, w when we see that flowery language, it's not that the language is flowery. It's not even necessarily that it's wrong for the audience. It might be that it doesn't fit the way the character would see the world, mm -hmm. which I think brings us to... It does. Our, um, our writing exercise this week is doing actually exactly this. Yeah. So what I want you to do uh, is I want you to sit in a room, any room you want to be in, and I want you to describe the room. And I want you to do this for half an hour. About five, maybe ten minutes into it, you will think, Mary, I hate you. I cannot possibly describe anything else. If you keep going, what's going to start happening is you'll start noticing the little details. And a lot of times those little telling details are the things that make a room very specific. So this is an exercise I actually still do all the time myself. Um, and what you will eventually train yourself to notice the little details first. So having done that... That's 30 minutes of writing. Now, what I want you to do is describe the exact same room, but describe it as if it is in a specific genre style of fiction. So maybe it's a film noir, it's, it's noir. maybe it's 
maybe it's epic sci- fantasy, epic fantasy, mm-hmm. police but procedural, pr- police procedural romance. Pick pick a specific genre and try to describe the exact same room, trying to evoke that genre. And then, and you don't have to do it for thirty minutes this time. You can just do two hundred and fifty words. That's a page. make it a scene. Yeah. And that, not a scene, because we're just thinking about description. Yeah. Um, and then the last go-round is that I want you to describe the same room again, but in your genre, in the genre of the story that you are working on. And from the viewpoint of the char- one of your characters. Yes, and from the viewpoint of your, preferably your, yeah. your point of view, one of your point of view characters. Uh, and see what you can do. See how differently those descriptions wind up being. Wow, that's going to be a great exercise. You guys should totally do that. And this has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.